Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer, Paul Wyke, and I'm a Phoenix attorney. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed material. It is broadcast the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. and other installments are available on demand. Our Arizona'sLaw.org website is independent of SunSounds, but its prime focus is to support SunSounds, which, by the way, is a service of the Rio Salado Community College, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of them. We urge you to do so now at Arizona'sLaw.org. By the way, AZ Law is now available for download at that website, as well as on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you find podcasts. AZ Law is there. You should be able to find us just by searching under podcasts for AZ Law or maybe Arizona's Law. So with that, let's go ahead and get to the news. And our first article is one that we reported on Saturday, February 1st, and it is Uber drivers and passengers won't be able to pick up case against Phoenix's Sky Harbor ride-sharing fees. The Arizona Supreme Court denied a request by five Uber and Lyft drivers and passengers to intervene in the legal challenge to Phoenix's decision to increase ride-sharing fees at Sky Harbor Airport. The Goldwater Institute had filed the motion last week, and without comment, the court denied it yesterday. The Arizona Attorney General's office filed the special action in January after concluding that Phoenix's decision to increase the fees for the drop-offs and pickups curbside violated state law. The Goldwater Institute believed that it could offer additional evidence and argument. John Riches, the Institute's Director of National Litigation, said, We are hopeful it can no longer the, that the city of Phoenix can no longer ignore those parties who have been most directly harmed by its actions. Both Phoenix and the Attorney General's office opposed the driver's and passenger's motion. The case will go on without that perspective. It's set for oral argument on March 26th. The city and the AG's office agreed that the fee increases would not go into effect pending the court's decision. And more about those fee increases, they would immediately raise a round trip or pick up a, a drop off and then a pickup or vice versa from $2.66 to $8. And the fees would increase up to $10 by the year 2024. And we updated this on Monday, the February 3rd, that the Goldwater Institute confirmed to AZ Law this morning that even though it will not be permitted to intervene in the case on behalf of the drivers and passengers, they will file an amicus brief or a friend of the court brief arguing why the fee increase would be harmful and why it would violate Arizona law. And our next article is also one that we reported on on Arizona'sLaw.org. And we also have a couple of commentaries about this case. Ninth Circuit throws out Arizona's ballot harvesting ban, says the law's intent was to discriminate against minorities. The Ninth Circuit found that Arizona's so-called ballot harvesting ban and its policy of wholly discarding ballots that are cast outside the voters' precinct discriminates against American Indian, Hispanic, and African American voters. By a 7-4 to four vote, the en banc panel threw out both, which could significantly impact this year's elections. 
The case was brought by the Democratic National Committee and the state's Democratic Party and others. The Arizona GOP and some Republican officials intervened to join the state in opposing the case. After a 10-day trial, the district court judge ruled in favor of Arizona. A three-judge panel at the Ninth Circuit affirmed that decision, but plaintiffs convinced a larger panel of appellate judges to reconsider the matter. So-called ballot harvesting is where groups, generally they are groups, visit voters' homes, collect their completed ballots, and ensure that they reach the county elections department. Arizona banned that practice in 2016. The majority believes that the ban was enacted with discriminatory intent, which violates the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution's 15th Amendment. The state tried to show that the legislators had acted in good faith, but the judges had an especially harsh retort for that. Here's a quote. The good faith belief of these sincere legislators does not show a lack of discriminatory intent behind HB 2023. Rather, it shows that well-meaning legislators were used as cat's paws. Convinced by the false and race-based allegations of fraud, they were used to serve the discriminatory purposes of Senator Shooter, Republican Chair LaFaro, and their allies. That's the end of the quote. The four dissenting judges charged that the majority went beyond the record from the trial to make their own inferences. The out-of-precinct voting portion of the decision may also cause significant changes, particularly in counties that planned to use only precinct-based voting. Several Arizona counties, including Maricopa County, have incorporated vote centers, sites where anyone registered in that county can get his or her ballot printed out at a vote center and tabulated on Election Day. The plaintiffs presented evidence showing that Arizona had been throwing out 11 times more, ba 11 times more ballots for this reason than Washington State had. They also had convinced the trial judge that the discarded OOP ballots were dis disproportionately affecting minority voters, and the Ninth Circuit agreed with that. We had an update to that article. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich wasted no time in announcing that the state will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to restore the so-called ballot harvesting ban. Burnovich tells AZ Law that it is surprising the Ninth Circuit took the unusual step of overruling its own decision from 2018. I have a duty to defend the law. Our office will appeal to the Supreme Court and continue to protect the integrity of our elections. The nominal defendant in the case is now Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. She praised yesterday's ruling, well, it was a few days ago now, in her statement to AZ Law, she called the victory one that facilitates participation in our democracy. She also noted that she had voted against the law as a state senator in 2016 because it created unnecessary barriers to the ballot box. In its decision, the court considered the lack of any evidence supporting a need for this law. It is my hope that our state does not decide to spend additional taxpayer dollars defending it. Of course, that hope that she expressed was before she heard the decision from Brnovich. So-called ballot harvesting is where the groups generally visit, other vo visit voters' homes, as we uh, mentioned before, so we'll skip that paragraph. Senator Michelle Ugenti-Rita authored Arizona's law, and she had a more succinct reaction when KJZZ asked her about yesterday's decision, bull hockey. Well-known election law professor Rick Hasen strongly suspects that the Supreme Court will choose to review this decision. He notes that the Ninth Circuit's reasoning could have further impacts on Arizona election laws as well. 
He said, a finding of intentional discrimination is especially important because it provides a basis for someone to ask Arizona to face preclearance for voting changes under the bail-in, bail-in provisions of Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court removed the Voting Rights Act preclearance requirements for Arizona and some other jurisdictions. The Shelby County decision was by a 5-4 to four majority. Hasten explains to AZ Law that if Arizona were put back under preclearance, it would not be able to make changes in its voting rules without proving that the changes would not make protected minority voters worse off. This would be significant protection against laws that could unduly burden voting rights. And the final update to that article on our website, ArizonasLaw.org, noting that ballots for the presidential preference election began going out in the mail or were about to begin going out in the mail, the Arizona Attorney General's office asked the Ninth Circuit to immediately stay the ruling on the ballot harvesting ban. They filed this on Friday, January 31. The stay request precedes the Attorney General heading to the U.S. Supreme Court to appeal that 7-4 opinion. And now let's uh, read a couple of commentaries that were both published on in Arizona Republic or on their website. The first one is from Robert Robb, an opinion columnist. Arizona can't ban ballot harvesting because we're racist? Federal court suggests so. Here's his commentary. Last week, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down two provisions of Arizona's election law, claiming that they violated the Federal Voting Rights Act. The reasoning was particularly contorted and tendentious, even for the Ninth Circuit. The more important provision was the ban on ballot harvesting, or the practice of political activists collecting large volumes of mail-in ballots rather than voters personally mailing them in or dropping them off at a polling place. The less important one says that if people vote in the wrong place, their ballot is not counted, rather than figuring out what races they were eligible to vote in and counting just those votes. Now, Arizona is hardly alone in these practices. In fact, according to some accounts, they are in place in the majority of states. The ban on ballot harvesting was actually a recommendation of the 2005 Bipartisan Commission on Federal Election Reform, co-chaired by former Democratic President Jimmy Carter and James Baker III, a longstanding Republican Bigfoot. The commission found that absentee voting constituted a major ballot security risk. It recommended that third-party handling of them be limited to family members, the Postal Service, and election officials. And it expressly called on states to ban political organizations from having custody of them. Arizona's law, enacted in 2016, mirrors the commission's recommendations nearly exactly. In fact, it's a bit more generous in also allowing caretakers to mail or drop off mail ballots. You will often hear the assertion that there has been no fraud in Arizona regarding ballot harvesting. The majority opinion reiterated the contention. That is not true. The Maricopa County Elections Department has credibly reported instances of people collecting ballots falsely claiming to be department employees. What happened with the ballots collected under the false pretenses is not known. But the assumption that ballots fraudulently obtained were from that point handled with pure and punctilious honesty is to understate it, not on firm foundation. And in 2018, a North Carolina Elections Commission invalidated the results of a congressional election because of ballot harvesting fraud that was committed. 
In Arizona in 2018, there were around 600,000 mail-in ballots that were not turned in. That is a lot of potential votes floating around. I have concluded that there is no reasoning to be had on this point. You either think there's a ballot security vulnerability with political activists handling tens of thousands of ballots unsupervised, or you don't. I'm in the camp that does. Curiously, the Ninth Circuit majority does not necessarily disagree. It refers to the commission's recommendation on ballot harvesting, scrupulously followed by Arizona, as common sense. It does not find either the ban on ballot harvesting or tossing the ballots of those who vote in the wrong place per se illegal. Other states can employ both practices, just not Arizona. Why? Because we are a racist state, led by racists and, by inference, populated by racists. That is starker than the majority opinion states it, but it is the foundation of its decision. In making the case for Arizona's scarlet standing, the majority opinion cites territorial practices being one of the last states to join the federal children's health insurance program, low levels of education funding, and a campaign claim by failed gubernatorial candidate Andrew Thomas to be tough on illegal immigration. I am making none of that up. Now, Arizona, as all states, has a history of racial discrimination in voting. But the notion that we are, at present, markedly worse than other places, to be singled out and denied the use of ballot security measures permitted other states, is nonsense. Judges treating states differently based upon the judges' evaluation of the souls of their leaders and people is constitutionally suspect. That is particularly true when it comes to what states are permitted to do to ensure the integrity of their elections. This decision stands on shaky ground. The district court upheld Arizona's election law provisions, as did a three-member appeals panel. This en banc decision, reversing both, was divided with two spirited and illuminating dissents. The U.S. Supreme Court previously struck down a Ninth Circuit injunction against Arizona's ballot harvesting ban, allowing it to be in place for the 2016 and the 2018 elections. The odds of any case being taken up by the High Court on appeal are long, but for Arizona, in this case, they are better than most. And that was the commentary from Robert Robb, and it was published in the Arizona Republic on Friday, January 31st. Arizona can't ballot, ban ballot harvesting because we're racist? Federal court suggests so. And here's a, a, a conflicting opinion by E.J. Montini, an Arizona Republic columnist. His is headlined, Federal Appeals Court Quashes Arizona's Latest Voter Suppression Law for Now. And it was published last Wednesday, January 29th. A few years back, the Republican-controlled Arizona legislature decided to make it a crime for a person other than a family member or caregiver to deliver an early ballot. It was a simple, cynical effort at voter suppression, and the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals just overturned it, for now. Ballot harvesting, as it is called, was a practice rooted in some rural communities on reservations and in some ethnic neighborhoods. The ballots were not being illegally filled out. The signatures had to be matched. The ballots had to be verified. Volunteers collected ballots from voters and delivered them to election officials. The Republicans running the state said House Bill 2023 was meant to protect the integrity of the voting process. It was not. 
You would think that lawmakers in a democracy would want more people to vote. You would think they would want to make it easier for people to vote. Nope. The problem here was not voter fraud. It was political fraud. The appeals court agreed, ruling that the evidence proved a disproportionate number of Hispanic and Native American voters were impacted by the law. The court also tossed an Arizona policy of discarding the provisional ballots of voters who turn up at the wrong precinct. On the ballot harvesting law, Judge William A. Fletcher succinctly stated the history of HB 2023 shows that its proponents had other aims in mind than combating fraud. HB 2023 does not forbid fraudulent third-party third ballot collection. It forbids non-fraudulent third-party ballot collection. It is a simple, cynical political strategy. If your policies and programs can't convince certain voters to support you, make it difficult for those citizens to vote. That's not exactly the American way, but it has been the Arizona way. And it is not over. Attorney General Mark Burnovich has announced that he will file an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. And that commentary from E.J. Montini, Federal Appeals Court quashes Arizona's latest voter suppression law for now. And so with that article and those two opinions, we will continue to follow that case as the Attorney General's office appeals it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Our next article is from the Arizona Republic from January 23. Woman can't use fertilized embryos without ex-husband's consent, Arizona Supreme Court rules. A Phoenix woman who preserved fertilized embryos before undergoing cancer treatment cannot use them without the consent of her ex-husband and must donate them instead, the Arizona Supreme Court has ruled. In an opinion released Thursday, the five justices who considered the case reversed an appeals court decision that found Ruby Torres's right to have a child outweighed her ex-husband's desire not to be a father. Torres, 39 years old, decided to freeze her eggs in 2014 after she was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer. An oncologist told her she likely would not be able to have children after chemotherapy. She asked her then-boyfriend, John Terrell, to serve as the sperm donor, and after initially declining, he agreed, according to court documents. The couple signed an agreement at the fertility clinic, saying the embryos could not be used to create a pregnancy without the express written consent of both parties if the couple split up. Torres and Terrell married within days of signing the agreement, but divorced three years later. During the divorce proceedings, Terrell asked the Maricopa County Superior Court to stop Torres from becoming pregnant with the embryos, and the court ordered Torres to donate the embryos to a third party. Vice Chief Justice Ann Timmer wrote the Supreme Court opinion reaffirming the Superior Court's decision, with Justices Bill Montgomery, Andrew Gould, Clint Bollock, and John Lopez joining her. We are cognizant of the unavoidable emotional fallout attendant to the disposition of the embryos here, Timmer wrote, but the family court was required to enforce the party's chosen disposition of the embryos as set forth in the agreement signed at the fertility clinic. That's the end of the quote. The parties checked a box that left open the option of one party using the embryos if both agreed at the time the relationship ended and directed donation of the embryos if an agreement could not be reached. Because Torres and Terrell can't agree, the court could only direct donation of the embryos, Timmer wrote. The Supreme Court also declined to award Torres attorney fees. 
Stanley Murray, who argued Torres's case, told the Arizona Republic he, of course, was not too happy about the decision. I haven't had a chance to speak to my client yet, but I know how she probably feels after what she's been through, he said. It's disappointing because we had gotten the Court of Appeals on our side. Murray said he was surprised the state Supreme Court agreed to review the case in the first place, since a state law passed in 2018, with Torres's case in mind, requires courts to give viable embryos from divorced couples to the parent who wants a child going forward. We did not expect this outcome, he said, adding that he was not sure whether Torres would appeal to a higher court outside of Arizona. Kathy Herod, president of the conservative advocacy group Center for Arizona Policy, said she was heartbroken for Ruby Torres today because she will not be able to bring her children to birth and raise them as she so desired. Herod said she hoped no other parent will suffer as Ruby is suffering now that the 2018 law is in effect. That statute releases the partner who does not want to procreate from any obligations. Because the law did not exist when Torres's case began, though, Terrell could have had to pay child support if Torres used the embryos to give birth to a child. That would have been crazy, said Eric Fraser, Terrell's attorney. When parties agreed ahead of time what to do with their embryos, we think courts should respect those agreements and enforce those contracts. No one should be forced to become a parent against their wishes. Fraser said he believes the ruling will have a big impact despite the 2018 law because there are still open questions about the scope of the new legislation. Couples everywhere really struggle with fertility issues, and the idea here was to donate these to another couple so they can start their own family, he said. We were expecting the court to rule our way. And that was an article from Maria Paletta of the Arizona Republic. Woman can't use fertilized embryos without ex-husband's consent. And there was an opinion column in the Arizona Republic after that from Joanna Allhands. And let's read that real quickly. It's a brief one. Arizona Supreme Court ruled who gets the embryos, but this case has no winners. The Arizona Supreme Court may have settled whether Ruby Torres can't use the embryos fertilized by her now ex-husband. She can't, not without his consent. They must now be donated, the court ruled, reversing an appeals court decision. That must be devastating for Torres, who can no longer bear children after undergoing an aggressive cancer treatment. I feel for her, but there were never going to be winners in this case. The ruling leaned heavily on a contract the couple signed at the time of fertilization, which stated that the embryos could not be implanted without both parties' consent. The contract also noted that in the event of a breakup, the courts could decide whether the embryos were used by one of them or donated to another couple. That left justices with the unsavory duty of weighing which side's interpretation of the contract mattered more. Torres had previously testified that she intended to use the embryos when and if she ever remarried, that she would not seek child support from Terrell, and that it would be Terrell's decision whether he wanted to be involved in the baby's life. So financially, at least, he would have been off the hook. But Terrell said in lower court testimony that he had no intent of co-parenting with Torres, saying he feared Torres would turn the child against him and paint him as a monster. He said he only signed the IVF agreement because it seemed honorable, and while he did hope to have children with her at the time, he did not expect her to survive her diagnosis. 
Those answers may seem cold, especially as read in court documents, but Terrell at least seemed to recognize that there is no clean break, especially when a baby is involved. That is the irony, though. There will still be a baby involved. The embryos must now be donated, and while the children that likely will result from them will undoubtedly end up in happy homes, there will still be questions about the biological parents that they may never get to know. Torres will have to live with that, as will Terrell. Neither is off the hook here. As a kid who grew up with divorced parents and a biological father I met only a few times as an adult, I can attest to that. I grew up in a loving home, but there were always questions in the back of my head about the man who was not there. A state law has since passed that requires embryos of divorced couples to be given to the parent who wants to bring them to life. That may avoid a painful court battle for other couples in the future, but it does not make these disputes any cleaner. Like so many divorce and custody cases, it may settle the strife between mom and dad, but there are almost always lingering effects on the kids. And that was written by Joanna Allhands in the Arizona Republic. Arizona Supreme Court ruled who gets the embryos, but this case has no winner. And next, let's read this article from Arizona'sLaw.org. Ninth Circuit says holding Arizona in contempt for health care in prisons is valid and maintains a $1.45 million fine against the state. The contempt order against the state of Arizona for failing to meet health care standards in state prisons is valid, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled today, the and today being last Wednesday, January 29th. The unanimous panel also upheld the $1,445,000 fine imposed on the state in 2018 and said the district court judge's reasoning for the $1,000 violation standard was valid. The 55-page opinion handled three other appeals by the parties in the long-running class action case. The Ninth Circuit made some determinations that will slightly reduce the amount of attorney's fees that the state owes to the plaintiff's attorneys. The district court judge had awarded $1.3 million in fees. The panel also ruled against the state in its appeals about continued monitoring requirements. Arizona argued that the district court judge lacked the power to issue the civil contempt judgment, that the state had not been afforded due process, that the amount of the sanctions was excessive, and that the judge had improperly added reporting requirements regarding the violations. The court disagreed. Here, the character of the sanction was primarily coercive. The district court explicitly stated that the purpose of holding defendants in contempt was to compel compliance because the mere threat of monetary sanctions in the order to show cause was not sufficient. Moreover, the district court utilized the paradigmatic coercive contempt sanction of prospective conditional fines outlined in the order to show cause and ordered defendants to continue filing monthly reports regarding their compliance. That's a quote from the opinion, the judges say that the sanctions are also compensatory, but that the amount did not become punitive. The state has already paid out more than $16.2 million in legal costs related to this matter, according to an article from KJZZ, with the largest portion going to the outside counsel representing the state. While the appellate judges remanded the $1.3 million award, the changes will not be major. Arizona blames private contractor Corizon Health for the conditions that brought about the suit, and the Department of Corrections has told lawmakers that Corizon will be held responsible. 
In that article, Ninth Circuit says holding Arizona in contempt for health care in prisons is valid and maintains the $1.45 million fine. Our next article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. Ducey asks Ninth Circuit to void court decision on land trust. Here's the article. Governor Doug Ducey is asking a federal appeals court to overturn a ruling that could affect his ability and that of future governors to tap a special education trust account to funnel more cash into schools. But the new filings with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals contain none of the vitriol that the governor unleashed last year at the trial judge who ruled against him. In new filings, attorney Theodore Olson contends that U.S. District Court Judge Neil Wake was incorrect in deciding that changes to the formula of how much can be withdrawn from the school fund cannot occur without congressional approval. Olson argued to the federal appellate judges that is not the way the federal law reads. And if that argument does not work, Olson has some alternate legal theories. The fight is over Proposition 123. That was Ducey's 2016 plan to put more dollars into K-12 education without hiking taxes. In essence, the governor asked voters to tap a special fund, which consists of money earned from the sale or lease of the 10 million acres of land that the federal government gave Arizona as part of the 1912 Enabling Act that created the state. Under normal circumstances, the beneficiaries of the trust, in this case public schools, would get a certain percentage of what is there. Ducey's proposal sought to more than triple the amount to funnel an extra $3.5 billion into schools for a 10-year period. Phoenix resident Michael Pierce sued, contending that any change in the distribution required Congress to amend the Enabling Act. Ducey disagreed, but he eventually did get congressional approval. But Wake sided with Pierce, saying the governor was wrong to make the withdrawals first and then get the legal blessing of Congress. In that ruling, Wake acknowledged that at least as far as Prop 123 is concerned, the matter now is moot, what with Congress finally ratifying the change, but the judge issued an order barring Ducey or any other future governor from making additional changes in the formula without going to Congress first. What makes that particularly crucial is that the distribution formula automatically returns to pre-2016 levels after 2024. And that means a net reduction in state dollars for education unless the formula is again altered or some other source of cash is found. And that is why Ducey wants the Ninth Circuit to void Wake's ruling. In his new filings, Olson told the appellate judges there's a simple way to make Wake's decision go away, conclude that Pierce never should have been allowed in court in the first place. He said the only people who can claim that they were damaged are the beneficiaries of the trust, including schools. In this case, Olson said Pierce has acknowledged that he has no possible eventual interest in the trust fund, other than being a citizen of Arizona who has a property interest in the trust and a concern that the money will not be there for future children. The 62-page appeal had a far different tone than the personal attacks that Ducey launched last year in the wake of the ruling. Judge Wake puts on a robe in the morning and thinks he's God, the governor said at the time, but he's not. And then it got even more personal. I want to tell you what everyone down at the courthouse needs to know, Ducey said. It is time for Judge Wake to retire. He is an embarrassment to the legal community. That was the governor's quote.
As a sitting judge, Wake could not comment, but gubernatorial press aide Patrick Patak said it was not unfair for Ducey to attack a judge who is legally precluded from responding to the personal attacks. Wake got to the federal bench back in 2004 after being nominated by Republican President George W. Bush and with the recommendation of the state's two GOP senators, John McCain and John Kyle. And that article was from Howard Fisher, Capital Media Services. Ducey asks Ninth Circuit to void court decision on land trust. And one more commentary we have time for that I found interesting. Found this in the Arizona Republic. Yes, it was. And this was from attorneys Mary O'Grady and Josh Bender. Progress, yes, but we still have good reasons to sue Arizona over school funding. So it kind of ties in with that previous article. A recent column by Bob Robb suggested that the state is close to solving the capital funding crisis plaguing our public schools. In fact, the lack of adequate funding for school buildings remains a major problem for our schools and a violation of our Constitution. We have faced this problem before. In the 1990s, a school district's ability to have decent buildings, textbooks, and computers depended almost entirely on the ability of the district to pass bonds and overrides. Kids in districts with little property wealth or with voters who would not pass bonds were left behind. After years of litigation, the Arizona Supreme Court held that this system violated the Arizona Constitution, which requires the state to maintain a general and uniform system of public schools. Lawmakers quickly broke their promise. The legislature eventually enacted legislation called Students First to fix this problem. Students First provided money to fix the disrepair that had built up over the years, take care of buildings going forward, build new schools in growing districts, and buy soft capital items like textbooks, computers, and buses. Unfortunately, the state broke the promise of Students First. It eliminated the building renewal program that was designed to give schools a source of funds to take care of their buildings and replaced it with a bureaucratic grant program with paltry funding that is only available after building a system, like a roof or an air conditioning unit, after a building system has failed. The state also ignored its statutory duty to inspect schools, slashed funds for textbooks, computers, and buses. The state also stopped updating its facilities, security, and technology standards, which determined the funding. And the state made the then-new school construction program a shadow of its former self, providing too little funding and delaying the funding until after districts were already over capacity for years. Schools had no choice but to sue. By 2017, schools had been devastated by years of neglect. Districts had to ask their voters to approve bonds so they could do basic things like replace aging air conditioners and buses or fix faulty roofs and make schools safe for our children and their teachers. In districts that could not pass bonds, kids rode aging buses to schools with dilapidated classrooms, outdated textbooks, and with technology with no ability to adopt even basic security features. That was why in 2017, our clients, four school districts, three education organizations, and a taxpayer, sued the state. Over the last two years, we've taken almost 50 depositions and collected a mountain of evidence. The picture has been remarkably consistent. Even many of the state's witnesses admit that Arizona provides inadequate funding to keep school facilities from falling below basic standards. Many needs remain unaddressed.
The state has responded by addressing a few of the problems. The massive cuts to the funding source for textbooks, computers and buses are finally being restored. That is progress. However, it does not make up for the huge cumulative impact of the previous cuts or the fact that districts that district additional assistance has not been adjusted for inflation in more than 20 years. Nor does it make up for the fact that the new school construction program provides only half of what it costs to build a new school. The state's facilities, security, and technology standards have not been meaningfully updated since 1998, and funding to repair facilities is in inadequate and unavailable until after a responsible district would already have fixed the problem. Until the governor and the legislature solve these problems, local taxpayers will be stuck footing the bill for basic needs. Kids in districts without bonds will be left behind, and the state will continue to violate its constitutional responsibility to provide a general and uniform system of public education. And Mary O'Grady and Josh Bender are co-counsel for the plaintiffs in the capital funding lawsuit called Glendale Elementary School District versus the state of Arizona. And the headline on that column was, Progress, yes, but we still have good reasons to sue Arizona over school funding. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to their website and donate. You can find the link either on our website or sunsounds.org. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming months, but hey, your comments and suggestions to make this program better, always welcomed, especially since this is a new program. Go ahead and email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com. That, and remember, Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law. AZ Law.